The term offseason, especially in the era of the transfer portal, has become quite the oxymoron. And ever since football spring practice ended and both the basketball and the baseball season concluded as well, it wasn't hard to find any news items to discuss in the last few months. But now during these dog days of summer, it seems as if the news cycle has slowed down a little bit, which is why I wanted to take this opportunity on this podcast episode to address any Sun Devil Sports questions that the fan base was inquiring about. There have been a lot of great questions sent my way in the last couple of days, so thank you to all the Sun Devil fans who wanted their voice to be heard on this podcast. And like Tom Cruise said, you not only deserve answers, but you're also entitled to the truth, and it's all coming your way next. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsitis.com publisher, Hode Rubino. Yes, it's been a minute since our last episode, so I hope this podcast finds everybody healthy. And if you're living in Maricopa County, I sure hope it also finds you with a capable working air conditioner. So here we are, just about mid-July. Pac-12 football media day is taking place on the 21st. And a week and a half or so after that event, ASU begins fall camp under first-year head coach Kenny Dillingham. And many of you had had questions about the football program, not only with what has been taking place on the field, but also off the field. ASU basketball has endured a massive period of transition, welcoming nine newcomers to the roster. And one element that is discussed quite a bit regarding both of those programs is obviously the state of the name, image, and likeness, also known as NIL. Naturally, a lot of these questions that I did receive centered around those topics. So without further ado, let's dive in. The initial questions I'm going to address are going to be from my premium subscribers at devilsdigest.com because first and foremost, you got to take care of those who do take care of you. And I do apologize in advance if I am going to butcher some of the usernames over here. Sometimes you guys don't make it easy, but that's okay. Uh, Devils Digested asked me, what is the date fall camp begins and how soon after that can you expect Dillingham to announce the starting quarterback? Um, as I mentioned in the opener, um, I do expect the fall practice to begin around the, the first week of August. Uh, the exact date, as of right now, July 12th, has not been given to uh, the media members or to the masses, for that matter. So uh, I do not have an exact date yet. But in terms of uh, announcing the starting quarterback, and I know that a lot of you guys listening to this podcast, whether you did or did not submit a question, are definitely curious about that. I believe that shortly after Campton, Arizona, which uh, the scrimmage uh, takes place on August 12th, the announcement uh, should be made because the so-called unwritten rule is that uh, just about uh, two weeks before your season opener, you do want to have a starting uh, quarterback in place. And Kenny Dillingham said during spring practice that players on the team are already going to know who the starting quarterback is probably a week, a week and a half into fall camp, even if there's not the so-called official announcement uh, by the head coach as to who the starting quarterback is. But if you just look at the calendar, uh, the season opener against Southern Utah is going to be August 31st. So that puts uh, the announcement to be probably sometime around August 17th with Camp Town Arizona ending on August 12th. I should expect sometime within that window uh, for Ken Gillingham to announce uh, the, the starting quarterback. I think that just by observing even the first couple of weeks of practice, even the media members, are probably going to have a good idea of who that uh, person is going to be, and we're definitely going to report that uh, during our uh, practice uh, recaps. 
uh, each and every day uh, during fall camp. So I would say that even my subscribers, days and days, maybe in the weeks before the announcement is made, we already know who's going to be the signal caller uh, behind center uh, on that uh, first snap on August 31st. Next question comes from Ray2363. Is there a floor or a minimum dollar amount that the uh, new PAC-10 slash 12 media deal needs to be at in order for ASU to stay in the conference or are things more along the lines ASU is not leaving for the Big 12 regardless of what the value of the new deal is? I think that's really the uh, million dollar question, <laughs> no pun intended, because I think the media rights is going to be uh, much more than that uh, per team per year. I would like to think that it would be north of $30 million, but really to be closer to $40 million a year, I, I believe is going to be uh, pretty pretty unrealistic. I think that uh, the remaining uh, 10 teams uh, in the Pac-12, that's obviously taking place technically in 2024 when the LA schools uh, do depart officially, really are in a wait-and-see mode to see what this media deal is really going to bring in terms of revenue. I mean, there are definitely some, I would say, athletic directors and university presidents that have communicated, obviously without putting their name to it, to uh, writers that do cover the Pac-12 on a permanent basis, uh, John Canzano and John Wilner, for example, that they believe that uh, this uh, media deal may even reach around $35 million a year per team, which really would be uh, a slight improvement um, over the current deal. And it really would be a win uh, for a conference that a lot of folks thought that was really left for dead after USC and UCLA decided to bolt uh, effective in 2024 to the Big Ten. But I'd like to think that Arizona State, and I know there's plenty of criticism uh, towards University President Michael Crow and Athletic Director Anderson, and those are definitely topics we're going to address later on in this podcast. And I'm not saying the criticism is not warranted to begin with, but I do feel that those individuals are not really going to stay in the new Pac-10, or maybe it's going to be Pac-8 at that point, uh, come hell or high water. Um, I, even though Arizona has hinted that they don't mind leaving the conference, even if Arizona State doesn't follow suit, maybe Colorado uh, feels that way with uh, Utah being their uh, rival, even though some argue that the, the two programs aren't really true rivals, but more like a, a rivalry that was created when the two teams did join uh, the conference some uh, 13 years ago. I feel that there's not going to be a whole lot of stubbornness in terms of uh, wanting to bolt to the Big 12, which also feels really the realistic destination for any team leaving a Pac-12, because ultimately, as much as you want to be in a conference with schools that are that are mine-like schools or you're used to, schools that geographically make sense. I feel it's also very important not to be stubborn when it does come to that. And Arizona State, I don't think, wants to be left on an island, so to speak, uh, without its uh, geographical rivals, University of Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. So why not join them if they do decide to join the Big 12? to a conference that, yes, I mean, does have West Virginia on the East Coast. That's definitely going to increase your travel budget, especially when it comes to the Olympic sports. But on the other hand, there's going to be a lot of schools in Texas where distance-wise are probably not a whole lot further than the schools in the Northwest that uh, ASU sports teams do play 
year in and year out. So I'd like to think that ASU is not going to die on that hill, so to speak, and wanting to stay in a West Coast conference and would entertain the option of going to the Big 12, again, just because the travel to some of those schools in Texas is not going to be a whole lot different than some of the longer road trips they do take in the Pac-12. And you just want to go ultimately to a more stable conference and Needless to say, the media rights deal numbers are going to have to justify that as well. So that's really how I view things. I know a lot of fans out there don't have a lot of faith in ASU making that uh, bold move. But I also feel that if Colorado and Arizona are going to be the ones initiating that move, then schools like ASU and Utah may just follow them just because it really would make sense uh, from a financial perspective perspective from a geographical perspective uh, really to ensure your future as an athletic department program with the necessary revenue streams to keep all your sports intact and not go into that endeavor which ASU unfortunately did encounter in years past of cutting sports or thinking about uh, cutting sports and if you do have an adequate revenue stream then that's not a conversation that you have to entertain. And going back to what Ray2363 did ask, uh, he did make a statement after his question that it feels like the two conferences are playing a multi-million dollar game of chicken. Nobody wants to be the first one to blink. Something's got to give. So the game of chicken that I do see here is Arizona and or Colorado just making that move starting whatever year and then seeing ASU and Utah following suit. So yes, Ray, I do agree with your assertion here that uh, the game of chicken is going to be played, I just see it being more played as far as schools from the Pac-12 making that first move, whether it be one or two schools, and then some other programs following suit. Next question comes from Justin311. I know it's sarcastic in nature, but here it goes. Is ASU Athletic Director Ray Anderson gone before Pac-12 Football Media Day? The answer, and I know it's an obvious one, is no, because that event is going to take nine nine days from now, and I don't believe that there's going to be any move done by University President Michael Crow to dismiss Ray Anderson in that time window. But let me just give my opinion, which is based in part of uh, some discussions that I've had with folks in the athletic department on this topic. There was a rumor earlier in the year that when Arizona State's uh, fiscal year did end on June 30th, that uh, Ray Anderson at that point may elect Uh, to retire. You have that uh, clean break of a fiscal year ended. And more importantly, it was just the theory of why would Ray Anderson want to still be in place when the NCAA's notice of allegation was uh, handed down after they concluded their investigation into the ASU football program and the alleged recruiting violations uh, that did take place during the uh, 2020 and uh, 2021 calendar years. To me, it's a theory that uh, did make sense, but I didn't have enough information out there to report it as being factual. And sure enough, June 30th came and went. Ray Anderson is still the athletic director at Arizona State, and I do still see him being in that capacity, even when the notice of allegations is handed down, which I do believe is going to be by the end of the calendar year. Some believe it's going to be before the football season begins. Some believe that it would actually be coming down while the football season is still ongoing. Now, the way I see it, 
if Michael Crow knew that Ray Anderson would resign, whether it be that quote-unquote magical date of June 30th or just resign at any point before the notice allegations did come out, and there would be a reduced buyout because Ray Anderson's contract, which is close to a million dollars a year, is going to expire in 2026, then maybe a mutual agreement would be made, a reduced buyout would uh, take place. Probably no different, really, than, I'm not talking about exact dollar amounts, but just to what transpired when Herm Edwards and the school uh, parted ways uh, three games into the 2022 season. To me, it doesn't make sense, and no matter what you think about Ray Anderson and his personality, that he would want to be in place when the notice obligations is coming down because it's obviously not going to paint him in a rosy picture, and that might be an understatement, especially when there's going to be more than likely just a litany of facts that are going to paint Herm Edwards in an extremely negative light. And as we know, the reason Herm Edwards was hired to succeed Todd Graham wasn't because Michael Crow was pushing it. It definitely wasn't because the influential boosters were pushing it. This is all Ray Anderson and his relationship with Herm Edwards and talking about the pro model that was supposed to uh, be a revolution in the, in the college football world, which was the missing piece of the puzzle, maybe the thinking out of the box that really was going to take this ASU football program to the heights that everybody was aspiring them to be, maybe finally waking up the sleeping giant, which I know fans are sick and tired of hearing, but that really was the thinking behind this. And it's not only that Herm Edwards did not even have a decent overall record. Forget about the fact that he never was really in true contention to capture the Pac-12 South, let alone win the Pac-12 South, let alone even come to close to winning the Pac-12 Conference, playing in a really meaningful bowl, etc. But not only did not all of that did not take place, but on top of that, here's ASU about to endure sanctions from the NCAA. And sure, there might be some negotiation in terms of weakening those sanctions, but really clouding the future of this program and really been clouding it for the last few years, let's let's face it, because one of the easiest negative recruiting lines that any program competing with Arizona State for Prospect X is going to be the impending NCAA sanctions. So with all that in mind, why you, Ray Anderson, would want to stay in place instead of just cut your losses, even if those losses are going to be financial, and just retire or just go and do something else. With all the tough questions you've been getting about Herm Edwards ever since this investigation began back in May of 2021, why do you want to be here subjected to that repeated questions about Herm Edwards? And now we're actually going to know what the damage of his regime did to the program. Why do you want to sit in a press conference addressing those notice of allegations, getting one question after another after another, questioning your judgment of hiring Herm Edwards to begin with? And there was a lot of controversy hiring a coach that 
had close to no experience coaching college football was, I don't know, nine so years out of the coaching uh, profession and coaching an Under Armour game, by the way, for all-star recruits, that definitely doesn't cut it or really boost your resume, I don't think, in terms of being a college coach. But it was a controversial hire to begin with. The results on the field definitely were not up to par, up to expectations of what ASU fans were thinking was going to happen with this out-of-the-box pro-model thinking. And the icing on a very ugly cake was the NCAA investigation, which we still, sitting here on July 12th, still don't know what is going to be the extent of all of all that punishment coming down. So the only other theory, and I don't know if I subscribed to it 100% or not, because if Michael Crow waited this long, why would it make a move even after the no allegations was handed down, was the theory that, okay, now the no allegations has been delivered, we know what the sanctions that Arizona State's going to endure. Does this give Michael Crow the ammunition to fire Ray Anderson, let alone fire him with cause, which would result in no compensation? Now, I don't think it's really that easy of an answer, that easy of a potential scenario, but that theory does exist out there too. So it's really anybody's guess what Michael Crow will or will not do once a notice allegation some allegations, I'm sorry, does come down. And Ray Anderson, which I think, and rightfully so, is already painted in a very negative light, is going to have that element really kick to a whole different level because it's not only that your hire of Herm Edwards did not bring any results that you expected on the field, but now off the field, there are going to be ramifications that are going to affect a regime that has nothing to do with Herm Edwards, for the most part, players that were not even recruited or played under Herm Edwards, but now they're going to have to suffer the brunt of all this. So it's definitely going to be a very logical cry from the fan base, from the boosters, that Ray Anderson, for whatever reason, even though he wasn't dismissed until now, now that we know what the sanctions are for the NCAA, because of the Herm Edwards regime, needs to go. But I think anybody would be foolish to tell you that that is definitely what's going to take place. So it really is anybody's guess how how much longer Ray Anderson is going to be in place. One thing that I believe, whether it's because of no salve allegations or just other elements in play, I don't think Ray Anderson is going to be at Arizona State through 2026, the end of his contract. And even if he was, I really don't think that Michael Crow would entertain extending that contract. And I feel that also Ray Anderson would not want to stay beyond that year to begin with. But there have been some twists and turns. There have been some theories that are here today and dispelled tomorrow. And the bottom line is, I don't think anybody has a clear-cut answer as to when Ray Anderson is going to end his tenure as Arizona State's athletic director. Next question comes from J.H. Leary. Is Kenny Dillingham's retweeting of prospects when they choose another program cringy, or is he just essentially letting them know he'll recruit them in the portal when they enter? You're absolutely right about the second part of your question. Kenny Dillingham is 
proven to be very recruiting savvy. It's not just because of being the youngest uh, Power 5 head coach out there, but he is very in tune with what goes on in the recruiting world. He knows that because it's so easy to enter the transfer portal and go to another program, even if you've been in your original program out of high school for a year or two, uh, he knows that uh, you really cannot burn bridges and you really should not be burning bridges. So just uh, making sure that that recruit is still aware of Ken Dillingham, still aware of Arizona State, I think it's uh, definitely a very simple thing to do and, and an action that, that does make perfect sense in a recruiting world where you just try to gain an edge any way you can. The next question comes from a premium subscriber, Cap, and I feel this is a question that maybe is not the number one reason, but definitely the top three reasons why you're tuning into this podcast. Who do you believe is going to be the starting quarterback, Trent Bourget or Drew Pine? Is it a case of Bourget being better than even he showed last year? Is he healthier? Or is Pine not quite what a starting quarterback under a name should be bringing to the table at a lesser profile program, albeit always lots of talented, skilled players? Now, some of my answers to the questions that you guys are going to ask is going to be based on opinion. But I feel that when it comes to such a significant topic of who your starting quarterback is going to be, you really need to look at the facts. Now, I was there for each and every spring practice. I saw how all the quarterbacks did perform over those 15 sessions. And when you do look at the stats, and it's very important to also mention that the ASU coaching staff, to their credit, did an excellent job divvying up the number of reps between Bourget and Pine. So it's not like one quarterback has a significantly higher or bigger sample size than the other. Okay? Jupine had 338 reps. Trent Bourget had 342 reps. So we're talking about a difference of four reps, which I think all of us would agree is a very negligible difference. Bourget's completion percentage at the end of spring practice, and let's not forget also that Bourget, for the first week of spring practice, was not fully healthy to be participating in team segments. So some would say that Bourget even may have started with a little disadvantage. But at the end of the 15 sessions, and again, we're talking about number of reps that are almost a mirror image of each other, Borgay's completion percentage was 78.8% at three interceptions. Drew Pine's completion percentage was 68.2% in having four interceptions. So when you talk about a difference in completion percentage of 10%, to me, that's significant. And that also does show who the better quarterback was. Now, if people want to say, well, Borgay is not a country mile better than Pine, but definitely established himself as the better quarterback out of the two, fine. I, I will go with that theory. Again, just looking at the stats. Those same stats will tell you that Drew Pine was sacked 17 times, Borgay was sacked 11 times. Again, the sample size of the reps is almost identical to each other. So... For anyone to look at those 15 spring sessions and feel that there's a neck-and-neck competition going into fall camp is absolutely denying the numbers, the raw numbers, the stats. It's absolutely denying what your eyes have seen there over 15 spring practices. Anytime Borgay did run the offense, it 
by and large, was running smoother and was being more effective than when Drew Pine was running the offense. Now, a lot of people ask me, well, is it impossible for Drew Pine to overtake Borgay in fall camp? Of course, it's not impossible. But I just feel that when you compare the strides that Pine still has to make compared to the level of regression that would have to take place simultaneously by Borgay, I just don't see that happening. Now, we might say at the end of fall camp, when Kenny Dillingham makes the announcement that, yes, Borgay was better than Pine, but the gap that existed there in spring practice did reduce itself during fall camp. That is definitely a plausible scenario. But giving my opinion, which in this case is really based on facts, the stats are the stats. That is what the coaching staff sees every time when they compare both quarterbacks. That is the first metric that the coaches are going to look at when they break the film. They're going to have assistants, members of their staff, bring the same stats that I bring after each and every practice. So make a, make a culmination of those stats after week one. Make those culmination of stats after week two. Make those culmination of stats at the end of fall camp just to have those performance markers for both quarterbacks to see who actually performs better. And obviously you have the film too. But it's hard for me to imagine that if one quarterback has a completion percentage which is 10 points higher than the other, that the film as it is is not going to portray the same picture. And for the record, I could care less who the starting quarterback for Arizona State is going to be in 2023. But I know Borgay was the better quarterback out of the two when spring practice ended. And we will see if he can maintain that edge when fall camp ends. So I believe Borgay is going to be the starting quarterback for the Sun Devils when the season opens on August 31st. Again, just because of the mere fact that whatever improvement Pine makes in his performance in full camp is not going to be met by the level of regression that Borgay may exhibit during that same time period that would cause the two quarterbacks to flip spots in the depth chart. Ultimately, when you do end spring practice on a much higher note than your backup, that more often than not does carry all throughout fall camp, it does ensure you a starting role. It doesn't matter if it's quarterback, wide receiver, safety. And therefore, this is definitely applicable to the quarterback position and the battle between Borgay and Pine, a battle that I believe Borgay is winning and a battle that, barring unforeseen circumstances, I see him continuing to win throughout fall camp. The next question comes from Santan Devil, another premium subscriber of mine who has uh, a fun question and a serious one. So let's start with a fun one. In your travels as publisher, uh, what is your favorite restaurant and meal you look forward to ordering during your Pac-12 road trips? Well, I think one restaurant I'm definitely going to try my hardest to hit this time just because it's going to be the last time that Arizona State's going to play in the Rose Bowl, at least against UCLA, for quite some time just because of the Bruins' move to the Big Ten is a restaurant called uh, CNO Cucina. Uh, they used to have a location in Venice Beach. Now they have uh, a location in Marina del Rey. Maybe that location was there uh, as well all those years. But uh, CNO Cucina and Marina del Rey 
you know, look it up if you're making that road trip to L.A. or just look it up if you're going to L.A., period, even not for a football game. Their uh, gnocchi bolognese is just out of this world. Their garlic rolls are off the chain. So I don't know if this is the favorite restaurant for my Pac-12 road trips, but definitely right there in the top five. And honestly, I do like to try different restaurants when I go on the road and not just have a go-to that I'll go every two years in Salt Lake or every two years uh, in uh, Eugene or, or Palo Alto. I, I do like to just just try different restaurants, but to, but to each their own. Bottom line, if you are going to L.A. for whatever reason, please make sure that you do check out CNO Cucina. No, they're not a sponsor, but uh, definitely one of the best Italian restaurants I think uh, you're going to go to. And obviously being in Marina del Rey, uh, definitely one of the prettier parts of Los Angeles. Uh, doesn't exactly suck to be stuck over there at dinner. So now I guess I need to answer your serious question, which is what team does ASU have the best chance to unexpectedly beat in 2023? So I guess unexpectedly beat can be interpreted as being an underdog period or maybe being a heavy underdog. And granted, there are going to be games such as on the road at Washington and Utah where I expect ASU to possibly be a double-digit underdog. You know, maybe at home against USC, especially if ASU does falter in the three games prior to that contest. Maybe that's another somewhat heavy underdog scenario for the Sun Devils. So there is one game, UCLA on the road, where I do expect ASU to be an underdog. Maybe not the underdog to the same extent as the other three games I just mentioned. But a game that I think ASU is very capable of winning even though it's going to be on the road. UCLA is a team that, from the outside looking in, seems they lost a lot, especially in terms of key playmakers on offense. I think their defense definitely had some issues in 2022, and I don't know how much of that got fixed in time for this upcoming season. So if I'm looking at a contest that would fit the unexpected win, as you described it, that is definitely the first contest that does come to mind. Next question comes from San Diego. Does the new offense base around getting rid of the ball quickly elevate the concerns around the offensive line enough to think that ASU can average 30 points a game this season? Uh, I definitely believe the answer is yes. Kenny Dillingham did say that if the quarterback does take a sack, it's on him more than the offensive line because, as you said, San Diego, this is definitely an offense which requires the quarterback to get rid of the ball quickly, and it also is an offense that gives the quarterback many options to choose from. So if option one and two are not available, option three and four, for example, are really going to present themselves quickly and be options that the quarterback can utilize in short order. And that goes back also when I was asked about the comparison between Dren Borgay and Drew Pine. You know, the fact that Borgay only was sacked 11 times and Pine was sacked 17 times. Also illustrates why Borgay is the better quarterback to run this offense is because he avoids sacks, at least compared to the competition. This is definitely going to be an offense that's going to operate at a neck break pace. I do like ASU's offensive line, and if they do need to do their job in the trenches and keep the quarterback in a clean pocket, they're definitely capable of doing that. But this is definitely a system, to your point, that helps not only the quarterback, but also helps the offensive line quite a bit because 
the quarterback is not taking seven drops, is not required to stay five seconds in the pocket waiting for a play to develop. I promise to answer each and every question that was presented to me, and the next two questions are going to require me to be vulnerable, but a word, my word is my word. Biggie Sun Devil, somebody who I've known for literally 22 years or so, in your opinion, when was your peak suckiness, or is it sometime in the future? Well, what can I say, Biggie? There are just way too many milestones to choose from, and I would have to think long and hard if anything in the future can top those. But there is one incident that folks love to remind me, even though it's been, I think, literally 18 years ago when I did an interview on Fox Sports Arizona, breaking down Arizona State's recruiting class at the time. I believe it's 2005. Maybe somebody can correct me there. It's definitely not etched in my memory that hard that I would never forget. But sure enough, I was doing the interview and the photographer failed to tell me that I did have a stain on my shirt. Uh, he did not try to conceal it, did not try to bring it to my attention. So uh, there I am, standing in front of the camera for about five minutes with a stain on my shirt, breaking down Arizona State's recruiting class. And for the old-timers out there, there that is definitely one moment in time that they keep on reminding again and again and again. And when an equally painful question Tejas 88, how much does it suck to be a Miami Dolphins fan? Yeah, it's not fun. It really isn't. I was uh, only three years old when uh, the Dolphins did have their perfect season, so I can't say I vividly remember that. And there's definitely been a lot of coulda, shoulda moments as a Dolphins fan. I mean, Dan Marino is still my favorite player, and the fact that he went to only one Super Bowl and did lose that one is uh, definitely a sore spot forever, but I'm having a little more confidence when I'm seeing out of that team. And, and I feel that they made an upgrade in their coach, made an upgrade in the personnel, getting a quarterback like Jalen Ramsey uh, can only help in a pretty tough AFC East. I mean, I mean, Buffalo Bills are definitely a formidable opponent. Looks like the Jets are getting stronger with Aaron Rodgers. You know, New England is New England. You really can't count them out uh, until they actually prove that. So uh, even in a very tough division, I'm not going to fall off my chair if the Dolphins are going to win it. That's how much confidence I have in them, at least for the 2023 season. How deep they're going to go into the playoffs just depends if they can avoid the stupid losses that they seem to accumulate each and every year that prevents them from having home field throughout the playoffs because it's extremely rare for them to win on the road in the month of January in what folks would call true football weather just happened last year at Buffalo. First half, they played probably their best game of the year because it was not snowing at that time. After halftime, when the white stuff came down from the sky, it was game, set, match. So I have confidence, but Dolphins broke my heart many times before. Wouldn't be shocked if they did it again. Okay, back on track to the Arizona State questions and West Valley Devil, if you had to put your best guess, will Kenny Dillingham be here as the head coach in 2030? I think he will be. I believe Kenny Dillingham when he talks about his passion and his love to this program. And after all, he is an Arizona State alumnus. He's somebody who was on the coaching staff here 
under Todd Graham. And I know that when people say a job is their dream job and this is home, in the cynical world of college football, a lot of folks are not going to buy it. But I just think uh, Kenny Dillingham is just cut from a different cloth when it comes to that. He is willing to have the patience that is needed to turn this program around. He knows he has the boosters back when it comes to exercising that patience. Not to belabor the point on the upcoming NCAA sanctions, but it could set back the program or at least stunt, stunt its growth, depending on how severe the recruiting sanctions are going to be. And I think that everybody in the athletic department building knows that Kevin Dillingham probably needs and I would say honestly deserves more of a rope compared to other coaches just because of the circumstances that that he is coming under. So I absolutely think that Kenny Dillingham is still going to be the coach here in 2030. I mean, his roots are here in the Valley and the greener pasture aspect is probably going to be less appealing to him compared to almost any other head coach in the Pac-12. Sparky BMXer13 has two questions to me. The first one is, do you see the Pac-12 imploding in the next year or so with no media deal? I don't feel like there's going to be a lack of a media deal by the end of 2024 or even mid-2024. But if it's a media deal that's not the liking of some programs, sure, as, as I discussed previously, it is something that would be a catalyst for some programs to at least think about leaving, if not if not leave altogether. So, you know, when it comes to the Pac-12 staying together or imploding, I think everything is on the table just because we don't know what the media deal is going to be. And again, we don't know what's going to be the acceptable threshold for Program X or Program Y or Program Z in the Pac-12 to really feel comfortable in terms of the dollars and cents to say, okay, we're going to stay put. We're happy with this media deal. There's no reason or no compelling reason, I should say, for us to go elsewhere. But uh, I, if you had to put a gun to my head, I don't think the Pac-12 is going to implode if the media deal is going to be at an acceptable level, maybe even at a higher level than the current media deal, which, according to some reports out there, uh, is a plausible theory, even if it's just higher by just a few million dollars per school, but we'll see. The second question was, um, how many quarterbacks do you see staying on campus once the roster is set for the 2023 season? Uh, I think that when you leave a program, no matter if you're a quarterback, cornerback, linebacker, what have you, when you do so in August or September, your options of latching onto a team in short order are really close to none. The loser of the Borgay Pine competition is going to be, and I hate to use that cliche, one play away from being the starter. A true freshman like Jaden Rashada knows that his time is not now. He is the quarterback of the future, so he is more than willing to wait his turn. Jacob Conover, somebody who grew up in the Valley, played for Chandler High School, just arrived this year. I don't see why he would be leaving right away just because he feels that he has no chance of being the starter. So we'll see what the end of 2023 season begins or 2024 after spring practice during that year would 
how it would shape the quarterback room, but I would say there's absolutely zero chance of any of the quarterbacks on the roster, no matter how the quarterback competition shapes up, no matter how the pecking order materializes, that would actually leave the program right there, right then, because getting in the transfer portal that early won't give you a huge advantage over other quarterbacks that are going to enter the portal later on because ultimately every program is really going to assess their quarterback situation at the end of the year, so we'll only assess it at the end of spring practice in 2024. Next question comes from uh, D-Bag. How is the quarterback race looking and what will be different with this offensive scheme versus last year? Uh, I did touch on it previously, but just to reiterate, it's definitely a offensive scheme that's going to really emphasize the quick release of the quarterback, not really staying in the pocket that long, getting the tight end even more involved uh, than it was last year. Although last year, uh, to Sean Iguana's credit, when he became the interim head coach, we definitely saw Jalen Conyers uh, really flourish as one of the best Pac-12 tight ends. And that is one aspect that's going to be enhanced that much more under offensive coordinator Paul Baldwin. I still think it's a scheme that does seek out balance, so it's not going to be an air raid. You're not going to see four wide receiver sets on almost any given snap. You're definitely going to see some two tight end sets, which by default can lend itself even to a better, uh, better running game. But it's definitely going to be an offense that in some ways is going to be simplistic, but in some ways is still going to be more complex to an extent that's really going to keep defenses on their toes. We know what Kevin Dillingham has done at each and every spot as an offensive coordinator. And that leads me to the second question you asked with Dillingham's time in the South at Auburn, can it help us recruit that area better or is it a lost cause? I don't think it's a lost cause at all because uh, ASU continues even, this, even, even in this 2024 class to have some success in the state of Louisiana. And granted, it does help that uh, you do already have players on the roster from that state, or you have a player like B.J. Green in a, from near, nearby Georgia to uh, really tell recruits that uh, this place, even though being pretty far from home, is uh, a really fun program and rewarding program to be part of. So I don't know if there's really going to be enhanced recruiting connections established in the South, but with the success that Arizona State already has found under this new coaching staff in the state of Louisiana, for example, uh, there's uh, no doubt in my mind that uh, the South is not going to be close to business when it comes to ASU's recruiting efforts. Another question uh, from Ty Cap. I noticed a pattern with Washington State's defense last year, obviously, then under defense coordinator Ryan Ward, who this year is ASU's defensive coordinator and also linebackers coach A.G. Cooper made the trek from Pullman to Tempe. It seemed that there were really stout and shutout teams early in games, much like the ASU game in Pullman or the Oregon game in Pullman as well. But the second half or later in the game performance showed a big drop-off. Of course, it's difficult to gauge how that translates in towards defense and Tempe, talent, conditioning, opponents' offensive schemes, etc., but any general thoughts of, in this area of concern? As you know, uh, in the Pac-12, so many games are decided in the last four minutes of the game or the fourth quarter. It's always great to start strong, but you have to finish even stronger to pull out wins consistently in this conference. Now, the, you know, that's an excellent question, uh, Ty Cap, and I think it's very, a very astute observation as well. Um, I know that uh, some coaches here in the past at Arizona State, Dirk Cutter is the first one that comes to mind, really minimize the 
effect that halftime adjustments can have. And I will agree that in-game adjustments are just as important as the ones that you do employ at halftime. But but nonetheless, uh, whoever wins the, uh, the, the chess match and really is an ongoing chess match is the one that usually does, does come out victorious. I do feel that uh, when it comes to the two aspects that, that you mentioned, the talent and conditioning, I'd like to think that at Arizona State, those are two factors that are at a higher level here in Tempe that, than they are in Pullman. Uh, you know, I know I know if Brian Ward would ever say that publicly, but I'm sure privately he would definitely admit that the overall talent level that he has right now at Arizona State is still better than what he had at Washington State. And let's not forget, Washington State really was one of the better defenses in the league in, during the 2022 campaign. I'm a big believer that if the defense does not get adequate support from the offense, they eventually are going to falter. And when you look at Washington State ranking 11th in the Pac-12 in total offense, and that's, by the way, three spots under an Arizona State offense that was an absolute mess, at least until Bourget uh, uh, took the reins uh, in midseason, that that uh, definitely did have an effect on, on the defense. And I never did a deep dive to see not only how the defense of Washington State performed in second halves, but also how the offense did perform. But that is definitely one element that has to be taken under consideration. I mean, if you're finishing 11th in total offense, I don't think I would be going on a limb without even looking at box scores to say that this is an offense that did not perform well in the second half, did not perform well in the fourth quarter. And you're bringing up the ASU game. Let's not forget that that was a game where the ASU defense, who was definitely not one of the juggernauts of the conference in 2022, did actually shut out Washington State in the second half. So I don't know if folks up there in Pullman are really disappointed with the way Brian Ward's defense played overall throughout the season or maybe just in the second halves throughout the season. But nonetheless, I don't think anybody should gloss over the fact that this was not a Cougar offense that by and large did show up for four, four quarters and all their losses during that year can really be attributed or overwhelmingly attributed to Brian's war defense in Poland. Sun Devil alum 77, uh, just like Santan Devil, has a fun question and a serious one. Fun question is, when do I sleep? Uh, normally at night. Although uh, when we have those uh, lovely 7.30 p.m. kickoffs, uh, it's really more the early hours of the morning that I, I do go to sleep, uh, getting home at uh, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, following such a kickoff is uh, definitely the norm and not and not the exception. The serious question is, how much playing time is Jaden Rashada going to see this year? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the staff wants to retro Jaden Rashada, so... He will play in no more than four games unless absolutely needed, which uh, again falls under that unforeseen circumstances uh, scenario. Uh, the thing is, like Arizona State definitely has some really challenging non-conference games, as I mentioned earlier. Fresno State, who finished in the top 25 at the end of last year. Oklahoma State, which is a weird team to figure out how they are going to fare in 2023. They were pick uh, six uh, in the uh, Big 12 preseason media poll. Uh, it's a team that started 5-0 and last year, one of those wins being 
over Arizona State in Stillwater and ended up actually seven and six. So really imploding in the second half of the year. Uh, lost their uh, starting quarterback, Spencer Sanders, to the portal. Uh, I believe uh, their best player on defense, Mason Cobb, is now at USC. So they definitely had some own, their own question marks to address uh, in the in the offseason. So I'm curious to see what kind of team we're going to see there. But when you talk about opportunities for Jenner Rashad to play, uh, you know, from Rashad's perspective, we really hope that Arizona State is going to be up big in those games uh, going into the fourth quarter so he can see some play time. Obviously, Drew Pine, I believe, is going to see uh, a considerable larger number of snaps than somebody like Rashad, assuming Borgay starts, which I believe he will. But uh, playing time just because of those challenging non-conference games may be hard for Rashada and any other true freshman on the team that ASU does want to redshirt because when it comes to special teams, I mean, you'll see a true freshman, obviously Rashada's not going to be one of them, that uh, may end up burning their redshirt by default just because they're going to be members on the special teams. And really when you have a roster where 50 or so of the 85 scholarship players are newcomers, it's definitely not out of the question that we might see one or two true freshmen actually not redshirt just because of their necessity on special teams. And wrapping up the questions from my subscribers, Ty Cap uh, could not resist and to squeeze in one more question here for our podcast. Who are the three position assistants on Dillingham staff that impressed you the most? excluding recruiting prowess. This is more about the respective leadership qualities, communication skills, football knowledge and expertise, maturity level, their ability to relate with other staff members, position players, and accessibility to the media types, as Dirk Cutter would often call you all. Wow, Ty Cap, you really want to get, get me in trouble with the coaches I'm not going to mention in the next minute, right? Uh, oh, okay, here we go. Rashad Samples, wide receivers coach, <laughs> an unbelievable recruiter. I think anybody who even casually has been following Arizona State's recruiting this year knows what he can bring to the table in that department. But uh, in terms of his leadership qualities and the way he coaches the wide receivers, I've definitely been very, very impressed with that. The next assistant that comes to mind, and I think this name is not going to come as a surprise, is tight ends coach Jason Mons. We already knew for years now that he was very highly regarded in the college coaching circles and to see the amount of detail that is evident when he does coach his position group has been absolutely impressive. A lot of the videos that I did take during spring practice of the different position drills were really focused on Mons because I think it's just an absolute delight to learn more about the game, learn more about the tight end position when you see him in action instructing his players. The third coach, I would say Saga Tuitele, the offensive line coach. And I don't know why all the names just happen to come up on that side of the bowl, but that's the first name that does uh, come to mind, or the third one, I should say, at this point. I feel that he does have a a way of relating uh, to to his players and to the staff members for that matter, uh, still being very, very technical. I felt like last year Mike Cavanaugh, the offensive line coach, was just a little too old school. And maybe that ability to relate to the players is simply not there when you just reach a certain age. And I, and I hate to like go to the ageist 
card, but ultimately this is a young man's game. And if you're not that young, you still need to be relating very, very well to your players. And I feel that Saka Tutele is able to walk that fine line because technique and mechanics, obviously important in every position, but extra, extra important on an offensive line where it's the largest position group that lines up on the field on, on any given snap. So to really have that group play in concert and play effectively in concert, I should say, is probably the biggest challenge for any offensive line coach. And I've been really impressed with what I've seen from Sakatu Tele in that area. And one thing I really have to mention is that I do like that uh, Stephen Miller, who, as many of you know, was a former offensive lineman here in Tempe, is now uh, uh, acting as a grad assistant. And, and uh, so Tele is really giving him a lot of duties, uh, letting him coach part of that group, during uh, team segments, let him you know run the show to some extent to really build him up as a coach. And if nothing else, I think that that is why I would include Tutele in that list in terms of the assistant coaches that impressed me. But I know this is going to sound like the uh, UN answer, but I'm really impressed with all the assistant coaches. I feel like they're very, very personable. When I At this point, I interviewed all of them and many of them multiple times. And sure, I've, I've known a lot of those assistant coaches personally. I mean, Charlie Regal goes back to the Dirk Cutter days, talk, talk about Dirk Cutter, that, uh, that I've known him. Uh, you know, Jason Mons, uh, Kenny Dillingham, Vince Amy are all assistant coaches that I've known for years and years. I mean, and some going over 10 years. So I, I kind of knew what to expect. So maybe, um, you know, for the most part, really focusing on the assistant coaches that I did, I did not know as well. I know um, I can only include three, at least according to your question, but uh, A.J. Cooper, the linebacker's coach, he's uh, someone that I was probably the least uh, familiar with before he came to Arizona State. And every time I interview him, every time I see him in practice, he's another assistant coach that really impresses the hell out of me. So overall, you you can't say enough uh, about the stuff that Kenny Dillingham has assembled there's really many reasons uh, to, to be impressed, not necessarily because how they treat the media types, but really just in all the other aspects that you mentioned. Really impressed with each and every one of these assistant coaches. So now we'll go to the social media portion of the questions, and let's start with Instagram. First question comes from Fiora Flower Floor. What do you think ASU's biggest challenge will be coming into the season? To me, without a doubt, it's defensive tackle. I'm not denying the fact that there were some pieces that were added from the transfer portal, in some cases even during spring practice, but mostly after spring practice, at offensive line, at linebacker, that really gives the staff, I believe, a higher comfort level than maybe they had coming out of spring practice. But when it comes to defensive tackle, I think you have some question marks over there that are looming large on the entire defense, uh, for that matter, not only just on the front four, Anthony Cooper, who is making that transition from end to tackle, has done pretty well in the spring. Uh, CJ Fight is a very promising uh, freshman that definitely was one of the spring standouts. But I don't know if really everything is figured out there in terms of the depth chart and just in the overall level of play that we can expect from that position. And as we know, Arizona State really had its, had its issues on the ground uh, last year, I mean, the Territorial Cup was basically lost just because 
ASU's front four could not stop the Wildcats' ground attack at all that afternoon in Tucson. So if that defensive tackle spot is one that is not only seen as a challenge at the start of fall camp, but also seen as a shortcoming, if you will, going into the season, that can really spell a lot of trouble for Arizona State. And again, not only for the front four, but really for this entire side of the ball, because now when you play in a 4-2-5 alignment as your base alignment, it's really incumbent that much more on the defensive tackles to be the run stopper or at the very least just give the linebackers the appropriate gaps, the appropriate area to maneuver to stop the running backs of the opponent. And if that defensive tackle group cannot perform at a high level, if it cannot have an adequate depth chart that can really allow for fresh bodies to play often and really play well, uh, this is uh, something that definitely can be an issue. So it's definitely a challenge going into the season, but at the same time, maybe it becomes an area that's a challenge going into full camp, but at the end of full camp, they might have a whole different outlook. And I will say this, if this Arizona State team does struggle on defense, I would be surprised if we're not pointing first and foremost to the defensive tackle position as being the catalyst to the overall issues that the ASU defense was having, will be having in 2023. Another question from Instagram from SM Hershey. What is the likelihood that we get a new basketball arena anytime soon? I don't think those chances are good at all. Uh, I've been saying for quite a while that ASU's biggest chance of getting a new basketball arena was going to be the proposal that the city of, that the residents of Tempe did strike down to build a new Coyotes arena, because I feel wholeheartedly that if that Phoenix Coyotes arena was going to be built in Tempe, that ASU was going to be a co-tenant, obviously need to kick in a good uh, tens of millions of dollars. But when you compare that to building a new arena or even doing a massive renovation of the existing Desert Financial Arena, I think that's a proposition that Arizona State would, would love to take. And now, just as the Coyotes are searching for solutions for their new arena, I think that uh, ASU themselves are kind of stuck looking for solutions as well. Uh, I don't believe that it would be feasible to tear down Desert Financial Arena and rebuild it. I don't believe that a major overhaul slash renovation of the arena is really going to do the trick and even give that so-called new arena feel for Arizona State basketball. So there's a lot of land that is owned by the university that has been zoned for other purposes than building a brand new basketball arena. But unless that happens, and I'm not saying the likelihood of that is even great, I don't know if ASU is going to see a new arena in in their near future. That That is my opinion. I know it's a bleak one, but I think also very realistic under the circumstances. Next question from Instagram is from Maskey Oren. What are the realistic expectations for this football team? Also, how is this year looking in terms of excitement and hype? Are the selling season tickets 
or could we be in for some rough sledding this year? I went on record saying that six wins for this Arizona State football team, especially having an eight-game home schedule, is a feasible feat to achieve. So is it going to be some rough sledding in a 6-6 six and six season? Absolutely. I think that ASU definitely has some very challenging games on the road at Utah, at Washington, USC and Oregon at home are games that are definitely going to put butts in the seats, but are also going to be, from an X's and O's perspective, uh, anything but a walk in the park. And we talk about butts in the seats, uh, I understand that the season ticket renewal is pretty high. I believe the, the figure that I saw is, is around 80 or 85%. And I know there was a dip last year in the season ticket uh, numbers compared to 2021, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't seem that fans are fleeing the ship at all since Kenny Dillingham has been hired. Yes, there has been a level of excitement. And I know there's only so much you can do before you actually coach your first game, but I think Kenny Dillingham is somebody who's has said all the right things, has pushed all the right buttons. I, I mean, sure, some of his uh, predictions and maybe uh, optimism for the program has not materialized yet. I know he wanted 30,000 fans, for example, in spring practice and was very disappointed in that not happening. But I also appreciate the fact that he was very honest and reflective in not bringing that many fans to spring game and talking about maybe doing a different format and really uh, learning from the uh, mistakes that were done in that specific area this year. So there's definitely... A lot of optimism, and I don't think it's fool's gold by any means, uh, with the hire of Kenny Dillingham, because you just see the new team culture that is employing. You see the recruiting efforts, both in the transfer portal and from the high school and JC ranks that are taking place under him. So there, there's definitely genuine reason to feel that this program is heading in the right direction. It may be baby steps, but... As long as those baby steps are in the right direction, uh, I think that the fans, going back to an early point that I made, are going to have the patience uh, to give to Kenny Dillingham that he is going to right the ship. But in terms of the tough sledding, I mean, yes, I definitely think there is going to be some tough sledding to be had by the Sun Devils in 2023. And last question from Instagram comes from uh, Phil AVRZ. I'm interested in knowing if ASU has a plan B if the Pac-12 commissioner fails to get a solid uh, TV deal. I think the plan B is going to be going to the Big 12. Uh, Going back to my earlier point, I don't know if it's really etched in stone. I don't know what is the media rights deal figure that ASU is comfortable to accept and a media figure deal that will prevent them from going to the Big 12 or any other conference for that matter, although I really think it's going to be Big 12 or bust in terms of actually leaving the Pac-12. So I don't believe ASU has already determined that come hell or high water, they're going to stay in the Pac-12. Like anything in life, it does come down to the dollars and cents. And if those dollars and cents are not presented in a media deal that ASU can feel comfortable with, then I would not be surprised to see them leave for the Big 12. Well, some of the Big 12 still wants them, which I, I still think that they do. But uh, you really just have to see when the ink is dry and the meteor rights deal, what does the actual figure look like? Is it something that Arizona State could live with? 
And even if it is a figure that Arizona State can live with, if schools like Arizona and Colorado decide that that figure is not good enough for them to stay put, does Arizona State still follow suit? Again, I still think it's anybody's guess as to what happens, but I also believe that ASU did not take any options off the table. Okay, let's move to Facebook questions. And first one that comes from Steve Lesur. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm very interested in the future Pac-12 media deal. How does ASU Athletics plan on generating revenue overall? Well, it goes without saying, Steve, that ASU does need to have a specific figure from a media rights deal to help them operate the, the, the athletics department. Now, granted, football revenue or the revenue that football is going to generate which, as we know, does not only sustain the football program, but sustains any other sport at Arizona State, not named men's basketball or hockey, is absolutely paramount to the operating revenue of of the athletic department. So those are really the two revenue generators for the athletic department. I don't think there's really any way you can be creative and generate a stream of revenue that's not a traditional stream, if that makes sense. you got the meteorites deal and you have the uh, football revenue that are really are going to dictate how much financial freedom or how much financial limitation the athletic department is going to have. Now, you do have another component, which is the university subsidy. In other words, monies from the universal general fund that are funneled into athletics. And that's something that uh, has happened and has happened at a high volume in, in recent years, um, especially uh, during the uh, COVID pandemic, where you had a lot of athletic departments, uh, not only around the Pac-12, but all around the country, that were slashing jobs, uh, issuing uh, furloughs, issuing, issuing salary cuts to their employees. And just because the Arizona State General Fund had money in reserves to give to the athletic department, uh, nobody in the athletic department did lose their job over that. Now, I definitely know that there is some criticism out there that the University General Fund should not fund athletics. And just because athletics has the ability, unlike the Department of Literature, for example, to generate money from media rights, to generate money from football, that they should not be dipping their hand into the pocket of the Arizona State University General Fund. But nonetheless, that is, I don't know if I want to call it a revenue stream, it's more like a subsidy that uh, has been in place uh, for the athletic department and still may be a subsidy depending on if it's going to be a higher or lower level compared to years in the past to be there uh, in, in the future. So if you're looking at a non-sports revenue stream, then I guess the Arizona State General Fund will always be there. I don't know if we really should take it for granted, but if we're just going based on history, that has been uh, one major avenue that has helped Arizona State help keep its athletic department sustainable or at least have the operating budget that they are seeking from year to year. Another question uh, for Facebook comes from Patricia Norwood, a walk-on tryouts planned for this year. And yes, I'm sure there are going to be some walk-on tryouts, which usually do take place after fall camp. Uh, We uh, did not get any concrete dates on that, but uh, we will definitely be... uh, publicizing those once we hear from uh, ASU football on that event uh, taking place. It's always a good idea to uh, follow uh, Sun Devil Football on Twitter to get that type of information. 
Hank Mueller does ask, why is Pine a better quarterback than Trent Bourget? The answer is, I don't think he's a better quarterback. And if anybody said that based on what they saw in spring practice, that's definitely a big head-scratcher to me. I already laid out the stats, which did bear out who the better quarterback out of the two was. One thing I probably should have mentioned earlier when I talked about the quarterback battle is that even though it's a level playing field for both Borgay and Pine, as far as learning a brand new offensive scheme that none of them are really more familiar than the other with, uh, definitely there's the aspect of Borgay having the advantage of having that chemistry already built in from last year with Jalen Connors and with Elijah Badger. And the most obvious prediction that one can make is that those two are definitely going to be the tip of the spear when it comes to ASU's aerial attack. But all throughout spring, we saw Borgay being someone who exercised better decision-making, which not only allowed him to have a higher completion rate, but also have him avoid sacks. Uh, But there's no doubt in my mind that just the chemistry aspect is an advantage that Borgay does enjoy over Pine, even though when the coaches did divvy up the reps, they made sure that both quarterbacks will also get equal time with wide receivers like Connors and, and like Badger and just first-teamers in general, offensive line, running backs as well, uh, just to really get the truest evaluation. And again, the evaluation at the end of spring practice, if you just look at the stats, is that Borgay is the better quarterback. So I don't think that's going to change during fall camp, but we'll see. Next question comes from uh, Danny Redondo, who's likely to be playing running back and who will be playing on the offensive line. So based on my spring practice observations, I think there's little doubt that uh, Cam Scadabo, who is the Sacramento State transfer, uh, was the best running back in the spring. Now, granted, there were a lot of injuries uh, in this position group, and one of them Tevin White, I think, is the most notable one because I felt that uh, he's somebody that did have a chance to start over uh, Scadabo or at least be the 1B to the 1A. And right now, just because Tevin White uh, was not able to complete, you know, an entire 15 sessions of spring, that kind of remains up in the air if he can really threaten uh, Scadabo as the starter. But, you know, that's the, that's what full camp is uh, to really uh, make up ground if you can from what uh, transpired or didn't transpire in spring practice. I've been very impressed with uh, Javon Jacobs, who made a a great transition from wide receiver to running back. Been impressed with the Carlos Brooks, the Cal transfer. George Hall, a returning running back, uh, was injured also for a good portion of spring, so I'd like to see what he can do uh, in in fall camp. Uh, You know, Kyson Brown, I think, is a true freshman that might be really intriguing compared to other true freshmen that arrived here in the summer. So I'm curious to see what he can do. But I would say that Cam Scadabo has definitely separated himself from the pack, and the pecking order after him just just remains to be seen. But uh, he's someone that I don't know if he's going to be really the bell cow that get the vast majority of the carries like we've seen with Rashad White two years ago and last year. With, with Xavier Valade, I really think that the running back by committee, which may have been a goal that never got materialized in the last couple of years, 
is finally going to be present. But that doesn't change the fact that I believe that Scadabo, when it's all said and done, is going to be the leader in rushing yards and rushing touchdowns in 2023. When it comes to the offensive line, uh, what I uh, project as being the starting five at left tackle, Isaiah Glass, at left guard, uh, Sione Finau, who is a transfer from Purdue, at center, uh, Leave uh, Fatnow, the transfer from UNLV. At right guard, Joy Ramos, who many of you recall was a transfer from Iowa State last year, did tear his ACL in full camp, but is healthy now and is the projected starter at that role. And rounding out the front five at right tackle, Aaron Frost, a transfer from Nevada, who missed um, all of last year uh, due to an ACL injury was also uh, not be able to practice, to fully practice in the spring, but should be good to go in fall camp. And he is slated to start at right tackle. Last question from Facebook comes from Doug Bremer. What are your thoughts of Pine and or Rashada getting the nod at QB1 and QB2 over Trent Borgay? Seems like this is a trending topic and possibly what is going to happen. Uh, I'm not sure where you're seeing that trend of Pine and Rashada actually being the two quarterbacks to battle for the starting position with Borgay being slated third. That's simply not what I've seen in spring practice. That's simply not what I've heard from folks on the team. So going back to what I've said uh, several times already on this episode, I believe it's definitely a competition between Borgay and Pine for QB1 duties, and Jaden Rashada definitely entrenched as the third-string quarterback ahead of Jacob Conover. And the last set of questions is coming from Twitter. First one from my brother, from another mother, Res Devil. Why do people keep posting pictures of Levine, yet they claim it's from somewhere else? Uh, I don't know, Res. I think that uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and if folks uh, want to claim Levine to their own, I guess uh, that is their prerogative at this point. Uh, another question comes from uh, Jacob Schultz, too. Uh, which ASU football player could make the ASU basketball team and vice versa? Uh, great question. I think uh, Jalen Conyers, just because of the viral videos that showed his exploits on the hard court, uh, could definitely be a football player that could make the basketball team. As far as a basketball teamer that uh, could make uh, the football team, it's really hard with uh, nine newcomers to uh, even make that prediction. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, Frankie Collins, the starting point guard, maybe as a cornerback, just because I feel there's a lot of traits, not only the speed and quickness, but good hips that uh, both a cornerback and a point guard have to possess. I think maybe Frankie Collins... Uh, could make a good uh, cornerback. Uh, for uh, the longtime ASU fans, you might remember that back in the day, Jason Braxton, who was the point guard under Rob Evans, uh, did actually get to practice at cornerback uh, under Dirk Cutter during spring practice. It was a very short-lived experiment, but uh did happen. So ever since then, I've been uh, a believer that uh, there's at least a chance for a point guard to play uh, cornerback, obviously uh, didn't work out for Braxton and doesn't really happen all that often uh, in the in the college world. But nonetheless, if you want me to answer a fun question, you got a fun answer. Uh, next question coming from uh, Professional Discriminator. Uh, that's 
quite the handle. Um, who wins the starting uh, quarterback job? What is the forecast uh, quarterback job for the next season, and how long uh, is ASU back to contending? So uh, Trent Borgay, uh does have eligibility also in the 2024 season, so I wouldn't be, would not be shocked if he not only started 2023, but did start 2024. Will he feel the footsteps of Jaden Rashada coming up on him more in 24 than he did in 23? I think that could happen. Can Pine, you know, somehow make a a comeback and be more of a challenger in 24 than he was in 23? I think that could happen too, but I would not be shocked if Borgay is the starting quarterback for 23 and 24 as well. But I think Ajeda Rashada and Drew Pine will give him um, all they can, and maybe one of them uh, can snatch the job uh, next year. Uh, we'll see. And in terms of uh, ASU being back to contending, contending for the Pac-12 championship, I think it's going to be easier starting in 2024 now now that the L.A. schools are out of the picture. And if it is San Diego State and SMU, the two that are replacing them, I don't feel that they overall really elevate the competition level in the conference. So if you're looking at a timeline of Kenny Dillingham building a formidable football program. A lot of it's going to depend, and I know I mentioned this already, is how severe the recruiting sanctions are going to be levied by the NCAA and how much does that stunt the growth of the program. Because if it's really not going to be a major stick in their wheel, so to speak, I think in 2025 you could see this ASU team already making serious noise when – the team is really built in Kenny Dillingham image, if that makes sense. Uh, just having a lot of talented freshmen now being upperclassmen really coming into their own. So if I had to make an educated guess, I would I would say 2025. But that uh, NCAA sanction cloud um, has to uh, really get off of this program and really see what it ultimately materializes at in terms of as, an aspect that does or does not hinder the program, and if so, to what degree. Uh, <laughs> Trevor Myers uh, tweets out, or asks, I'm sorry, on Twitter, I'm 25, will I still be alive when the Pac-12 signs a new media deal? Yes, Trevor, you still will be alive. You might be 26 rather than 25, but yes, I think you are going to see a Pac-12 media deal in your lifetime, a lucrative one or not. That's a whole different question. Next question comes from at Sun Devil Tempe. How is ASU doing with the NIL compared to other Pac-12 teams? I would say really just middle of the road. Um, you know, it's probably better than the Oregon states and the Washington states out there, but definitely not, not at the level of not only the LA schools, which obviously starting next year ceased to be a factor, but I also think that compared to schools like Oregon, Washington, Maybe even a school like Arizona. I don't know if ASU measures up uh, with them. I mean, definitely with with Washington and Oregon, I, I believe they are lacking. Uh, it's definitely a sore spot. It's definitely one area that ASU has to get better at. Uh, if they will or won't, uh, you know, time will tell. I think that compared to the year before, I don't know if ASU really lost a good number of significant players from the roster because of NIL. Uh, did have enough NIL in place to keep keep pieces on the offense like Elijah Badger, like Jalen Conyers, 
But uh, overall, it's definitely an area that ASU is going to have to step up at uh, in order not only to retain players, but also attract players from the transfer portal. Next question comes from Sun Devil GPS. Uh, we've seen the beginning a ton of three-star commits and some that are un- unrated. Usually more four-star guys are mixed in. Uh, does that mean that the best kids aren't interested in or the coaches or just going by the own evaluations? Does that concern you in the long run? It doesn't concern me that much in the long run because ASU, just this last, you know, this past year, and really I should say, you know, since November of last year when Taylor Lingham was hired, uh, did very well in the transfer portal. And I think uh, their philosophy in recruiting has been that when it comes to players in the trenches, offensive line, defensive line, they will be happy to take those diamonds in the rough if they need to supplement some pieces of the puzzle from the transfer portal to go ahead and do so. But in any other position but those two that I just mentioned, they are actually really going to try to go for the highest rated athlete. Now, NIL is going to come to play because Kenny Dillingham said that he's not going to promise any NIL deals for incoming freshmen. That is a policy that other schools in the Pac-12 and nationwide do not follow. Whether that's right, whether that's wrong, I think the test of time is really going to prove that. But... You mentioned the aspect of does the staff simply just really trust their own evaluations? And I believe the answer is yes. Uh, Some may be critical of of that approach uh, when you are seeking the diamonds in the rough, when you are seeking recruits that have have, uh, received uh, very little recruiting attention to date. But again, I, I just feel it's just way too early to judge that approach as being right or wrong. Uh, next question uh, comes from uh, Chris Falconer. Uh, do you or any of Devil's Jitus employees plan asking Jed Fish, the Arizona head coach on Pac-12 Media Day, about his captain starting quarterback, Jed Andalora, a demitted rate confession? Uh, I'll be honest with you, Chris. I mean, that's uh, not something that uh, I thought uh, ahead of. I'm there first and foremost really to cover, you know, Arizona State. Uh, the uh, players are going to be there, uh, Jalen Conyers, uh, and uh, Jordan Clark, as obviously as well as head coach uh, Kenny Dillingham, uh, really get the most uh, news and narrative um, out of them. I'm sure there's going to be some reporter that is going to ask that question. I'm, I'm curious to see what Fish is going to have to say on the topic. But uh, either way, uh, he's definitely going to find a justification as why Jaden Delora, who, according to the reports, did admit to rape, uh, did is actually going to be the starting quarterback at the Wildcats. And if that's the way they choose to run their program, so be it. If God forbid ASU was ever in that position, I really hope they would handle their business differently than they do in Tucson. And the last question of this mailbag, Will underscore Jasper 24, what, what is it going to take to get Ray Anderson out of Tempe? And do we have any update on the notice of allegations coming from the NCAA? So in terms of what it's going to take uh, for Ray Anderson to be dismissed, uh, the biggest question is, is he going to leave on his own terms or is university president Michael Crow actually going to make it happen? And again, I floated the theory that maybe he's waiting for those allegations that you mentioned uh, to be the uh, catalyst that's uh, going to cause Ray Anderson in Arizona State to part ways. Uh, That's definitely a theory that's out there, whether it's something that's, really going to happen or not i don't think anybody knows for sure but if it did happen at that time uh, that is uh, definitely 
acting in accordance to a theory that's really been out there for uh, quite a while. Um, there's really no update on the no-sub allegations timeline being handed down from the NCAA. The prevailing uh, wisdom, if you can describe it as, as such, is that uh, it is going to take place by the end of the calendar year. Would I be floored if it only happened in 2024? At this point, no, because uh, these investigations really tend to uh, drag their feet. I know there was a really unfortunate situation in terms of the team of investigators on this case uh, that one of the investigators uh, did pass away uh, during the investigation process of ASU. So that uh, definitely did set back the group uh, uh, quite a few months. So does that uh, setback means that uh, 2023 is not a uh, feasible target date, or should I say end of 2023, feasible target date for the NOA to be presented? Uh, maybe, but uh, it does uh, seem that as much as you can have a reasonable expectation when it comes to processes like that is that uh, the notice of allegations will, will be presented to Arizona State by December of 2023. Okay, guys, that wraps up the mailback edition of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Uh, again, big thanks to everybody who submitted their questions. I believe I was able to address each and every one of them from all the social media platforms, from my uh, own premium uh, message board. And speaking of that premium message board, uh, the opinions, the facts that I uh, stated over here are just a very small sample of what my premium subscribers do get to enjoy on a daily basis. Uh, there's definitely even a higher level of candidacy, not that I wasn't candid here in this podcast, and definitely uh, some other details on various Sun Devil Sport topics that were not mentioned in this podcast, but definitely have been mentioned for quite a while on our premium message board, Sparky's Huddle. Would love for each and every one listening to this podcast who is not already a premium subscriber to come uh, join us in a, a community of Sun Devil fans, just like yourself engaging in civil discussion about any Sun Devil sports topic that you can think of. And even if the topics are uncomfortable to, to discuss and there's a lot of criticism and scrutiny involved, nonetheless, I know that we have a community of uh, fans who definitely keep the discussion on topic and really have a great exchange of ideas and of opinions. And there's really no better time to join uh Right now, uh, we have the Pac-12 Media Day, as I mentioned, taking place on the 21st of July, and fall camp is going to take place the first week of August. So uh, there's definitely not going to be any shortage of news uh, coming your way uh, when it comes to how the depth chart is forming throughout uh, fall camp, the quarterback battle, which I talked obviously quite a bit on um, on this episode, uh, and, you know, some uh Discussions that are taking place for matters off the field, the ASU Athletic Department leadership, uh, the Pac-12 uh, media rights deal. You know, I can go on and on. Would uh, love uh, for anybody that did or did not ask a question uh, to become a uh, premium subscriber. Join us at Sparky's Huddle. Uh, would love uh, to see you there and also give you the opportunity to ask uh some other questions that maybe you didn't have a chance uh, to ask them today. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll have our next episode later on this month.